Hi everyone. I'm Gary Nolan. I'd like to welcome you to this program. But now let's go to our conference call with Dr. Bruce Lipton. He is an international authority on the new emerging biology of cellular activity and on the interface between science and spirituality. From 1987 to 1992, he was a researcher at Stanford University School of Medicine. And among his discoveries are identifying the mechanisms in cells that function like a brain in the founding of a field of cellular biology known as epigenetics. Dr. Lipton is now recognized as one of the leading voices in the new biology and the mind-body medicine. His book, The Biology of Belief, has been a landmark working uh, title for a long time on cellular science. His new book is called Spontaneous Evolution, A Positive Future and a Way to Get There. And uh, it's nice to have him back with us. Nice to have you back today. I so appreciate it, Gary, and a chance to talk to your wonderful audience. I look forward to that. I think we might begin with first addressing a paradoxical situation. By all accounts, we can say Western civilization is in a state of decline. The corporations um, in just about every part of our lives are influencing us more than ever before, and like a matrix, defines the belief systems that influence so many citizens, and these are fundamentally based on greed, influence, and power. There is, of course, health care, now a, a war of necessity uh, in Afghanistan, and bailing out the wealthy while the citizenry falls into greater despair, and the myths such as clean coal and climate change denialism, all fabricated by very wealthy forces. Yet here is the paradox you offer, that the decay in our civilization is a positive development. So would you take us through the first of the main signs of postmodern civilization's degeneration, and then second, if this is a good news, then why and where is civilization's demise leading us? <laughs> well, Gary, it's, uh, it's good news. <laughs> That's a, a funny starting place when you look at the world seemingly collapsing around us. Uh, it turned out to be it's very good news for a very simple reason. Um, we have now reached a point that scientists have recognized that uh, we have a non-sustainable system on this planet right now that uh, all the signs of extinction are looming in front of us uh, with grave alterations to the biosphere and loss of species and uh, just the kind of pollution and upheaval that we've generated. We've challenged the, the web of life and threatened it right now. And why it becomes important to recognize this is that, well, uh, there's an old quote from Einstein that I'd love to use, and it uh, basically says that, um, uh, you can't solve the problems with the same thinking that created them. And what we look at in the world that we're facing right now, this unsustainable world, is that there are institutions out there that have been built up over the last 150 years that have been uh, sort of leading us down this uh, pathway to self-destruction. And the significance about it is that, as Einstein said, the, the only way you're going to survive this is to eliminate the thinking that created it. And the thinking that created it, as you mentioned in a few of the things, is the, the nature of economics in the world today, the political structure, the medical structure, the academic structure. Uh, these are old belief systems that uh, have actually programmed our own demise at this point. And so basically, what it says is, uh, if you listen to Einstein about it, it basically says if we want to survive, 
then those structures that are causing this problem have to, to fall. So then you look around at the world and you say, oh, my God, all these crises are showing up. And it's like, well, the crises are not individual separate events. They're all connected to the very same extinction problem. And so rather than looking at them as little fires starting all over the place, I see it as one big giant blaze that, um, that the system is not sustainable that in order for us to survive, then those major institutions have to be you know, actually replaced with more uh, viable alternative uh, uh, economies, politics, education, healthcare, and all that. So basically it says that the end of the civilization is not the end of people, it's the end of running business as usual and the start of creating uh, a more uh, viable alternative reality. So. When you look at the world crumbling around you, uh, the way I would look at it, I think, oh, my God, thank goodness, because it was that world that is responsible for the problems we have. And so uh, your you know, you're big and long-time dedication to uh, affecting first the health industry, and then all of a sudden you know, we start to recognize all the other problems, politics, economy, and all that. Um, this effort is really important part, Gary, because this is the effort of – how do we transition from where we are to this other place? And we should be welcoming the crumbling of the structure. So uh, the, the unfortunate part is the media has people scared to death about the crumbling of the, of the structure. And yet, if it doesn't crumble, it's even worse for us. So uh, we're at the right place at the right time for ending the way of life we've been uh, living for the last number of years and trying to create this uh, new vision that is more uh, support of, of our viability. Thank you. I appreciate that insight. Now let's talk about something just as an example of this and what you're discussing and how prophetic it is. Two years ago, I did a series of five in-depth um, point discussions on Dubai and uh, why Dubai was not sustainable, why it would fail and go bankrupt and then disintegrate. And I remember at the time people, including a friend of mine who works on Wall Street, and he was one of the people at Goldman Sachs in a higher position. And after the show, and he was sitting in the studio listening, and he said, well, that's extremely naive, Gary. Do you realize how much money people are putting into Dubai? This is the hottest place in the world right now as far as investments. And I said, hold on a second. What are you missing in this picture? Why would I go out on a limb and, and put my reputation on a limb and say that Dubai will cease to exist? And I didn't say slow down, slightly alter. I said it will be a ghost town. Listen carefully, I said to him. And this is where I'm going to ask you to give your insight. I said, first, you're taking an old Bedouin area that is inhospitable to life. And you're asking for one of the largest most modern cities in the world to be built there. There is no natural resources. The sun averages 120. You're not allowed to be outside if you're a citizen for more than 10 minutes at a time because you could suffer from heat stroke. There is no water. They have to bring in the water. They have to bring in massive amounts of desalinized water. Then they build it at sea level. Knowing that the glaciers are melting, knowing that Greenland, Antarctic's two shelves are, are breaking into the sea, we have already seen a one inch to one and a half inch rise in the sea levels in the last uh, 10 years. And it's now saying that it's going to double or triple. So we're going to see 
a meter rise in the oceans around the world uh, in, the, in our lifetimes. And probably in chaos theory, a lot faster than that. Because once something begins to accelerate, there's no longer an accurate mathematical model. Now, when you build an underground mall that is below sea level, when you build the largest structure in the world, the largest, tallest building in the world, at sea level, you do not have uh, stone. You don't have uh, a solid bedrock. You have sand. They build an island out there. Prices of those homes in that island go from anywhere from a few million to $20 million. The celebrities come in, uh, people from around the world come in, and now, now it's all coming to a head. Why? Because first it was built by slave labor. The people were promised jobs that came there, and they're having to work long hours. They're kept captive there by the uh, emirate ruler. And all those people who go by these buildings see that they're slave labor uh, being used from India, uh, from Indonesia. They take away their passports. When they get there, they only give them 10 cents on the dollar to pay them. They can't get out of the country, and yet terrible conditions. And if they try to protest, they're beaten by the police. So it's, it's a very ruthless place. But now, how do you maintain a place where there's no sustainable materials? You don't. And yet initially, as long as you have people who are willing to say yes to anything because you're paying their salaries, you'll have engineers and architects and building planners say, yes, we can build it, we can build it. But no one's asking, what about in 10 years? Will it still be here? Because nobody was willing to cut off their own financial interest. The wealthiest people, the wealthiest corporations all said yes. Now, as of today, that kingdom that has no oil of its own, its neighboring emirates have, but they don't, they have just on their immediate short-term debt $59 billion they can't pay. But how much is the actual debt? I'm guesstimating close to $1.5 to $2 trillion because the other buildings in there were frequently financed either in part or whole by other major corporations wanting to get on the boom. And that's why you have thousands of buildings and homes and now all those people are in a market that has lost more value than anything we've seen in the United States market. Plus now, what I predicted would happen. People I know who've been in Dubai, people I know who live in Dubai, say that all the homes have cracks, the foundations are breaking, that, um, that all the problems you would never anticipate are now happening and no one's being responsible because the companies originally built it out of business. So now what you have is you have the ocean and the desert are going to take back an environment that cannot be sustained by people who are so greedy, so selfish, they weren't willing to see that slave labor built it, they weren't willing to see that it was a completely debt and, and debt engorged bubble, and now those people are going to get a rude awakening. But I say take a look at Dubai, look at China in a different way, massively overspending, massively overgrowing without any idea of the environmental or human consequences. Look in the United States, massive over-urbanization, massive overdevelopment, massive movements to cities that cannot sustain them. And then ask yourself, I think it's a good thing that all of this comes tumbling down. I think it's a good thing when major institutions that have defrauded us and lied to us, manipulated us, now have to cease their operations and if they can't do that, then we should pull away our support and start a whole new way of living. Your thoughts on this, please. Well, this is exactly where I stand, the same thing, and that is, uh, as you said, 
uh, we've been led by people who with very short-sighted vision. In fact, in my understanding of the evolution where civilization uh, is a fractal image of, of animal evolution, so civilization is a, is a, a superorganism. Humanity is the organism, and humans are cells in the body of humanity. And when you understand this evolution of this larger thing called humanity, it goes through the, the same uh, evolutionary stages that animals have gone through because it's, a, it's an evolving animal. And where we are right now is in the, the final stages of the last days of the reptiles and dinosaurs ruling the world before the meek took over, and the meek were the mammals. So uh, there was an evolutionary time where there were dinosaurs on this planet as well as these little furry, soft little mammals, and the mammals were called the meek, and they were lorded over by the dinosaurs, and uh, uh, um, an environmental crisis led to the collapse of the dinosaur phase, and then the, the meek took over the earth. Well, uh, as you're talking about, we're in the final throws of this dinosaur stage and it's interesting because our civilization is actually fueled by oil which is, you know in, in terms of uh, literal terms they talk about oil as the blood of the dinosaur that our civilization is characterized by this reptilian look and one important thing about reptiles and dinosaurs is that it was a unique uh, species of animals that got bigger and bigger and bigger but the brain stayed very small and uh, and the problem with the dinosaur was that when the environment changed, the brain wasn't big enough to to, to manage that massive big body that they had uh, and keep it alive. And then I say, well, what is today's dinosaurs? And today's dinosaurs are corporations, and uh, they started from little lizards, which were like mom and pop shops, and, and then grew into these giant dinosaurs with little tiny brains. I mean, for example, that's why General Motors was making SUVs when when gas was screaming up like crazy and were running out of fuel and they're making a vehicle that gets seven or eight miles to the gallon. It's like, where's the thinking? <laughs> and the fact is, yeah, it's old. It's an old vision. It's a thinking that has passed its time and it's in a state of collapse. And the entire thing must collapse if the meek, if the future people that are nurturers, that's what mammals are, nurturers, if the meek nurturers which want to take care of the planet and take care of each other are to survive, then we should stand back and keep out of the way of these dinosaurs as they fall down because those are the limiting factors of our evolution right now and that's why I get very excited by the, the collapse and, and the collapse means that there's hope for us because if it doesn't collapse there is no hope for us and so uh, and it's interesting because you're talking about the nature of Dubai where the corporate people uh, are running the, the poor people into the ground and giving them jobs without salaries and all this kind of stuff and I think you know Gary when you were talking about that it's like it's not that different from the United States <laughs> you were talking it's Walmart about it's, uh, it's no, Walmart, we, it's Kentucky Fried Chicken, it's fast food eateries. Exploit people, do not allow them to share in either the vision or direction, and just be there to facilitate the rapid growth. Uh, that's what's happening. Next issue, briefly address why each of the things I'm going to mention um, are no longer viable, that they're now obsolete. Newtonian physics, genetic control of life, survival of the fittest, and the concept of random evolution and how should we really understand evolution now based upon more recent sciences? Well, the first thing is 
the the demise of a Newtonian worldview, which is a worldview uh, based on a matter is the primary essence of the universe. And so in a world based on a Newtonian vision, then matter represents the value of the universe. And, and therefore, when you see the world that we live in, in a Newtonian world, uh, the collection of matter and amassing of matter is used by people to represent uh, their, their uh, fitness in the world. The more matter you have, the, the more fit you apparently are. You know, it's that old story about uh, he with the most toys when he dies wins. That's a Newtonian world. The quantum world, which is replacing it, says, look, it's not the physical realm that is primary, it's the energetic realm. And you say, well, what's that? Well, the non-tangible things, love and harmony and peace, uh, the, these are parts of the energy that, that we need to bring in and evoke because Newtonian physics is the old vision emphasizing matter, but quantum says, no, the world is shaped by the invisible forces, and, the, and these invisible forces are our emotions and our thoughts and our beliefs and attitudes about the world. So the evolution is not based on getting more matter, but is enhancing our consciousness, uh, which then in turn will enhance our lives. The, the genetic control one is a very, diff a very important point because our belief system is based on um, uh, genetic determinism where genes control your fate. So what that means is as far as we know, we didn't pick the genes. We, don't, we can't change the genes we come with. And basically says that at the moment of conception, whatever genes you were dealt, uh, in some way determine the rest of your whole life and you become a victim. You're a victim because you, you can't influence the genes, you can't change them, and, and you had nothing to do with their selection. So we are in a world of, oh, everything that's wrong with you, you're a victim. And the new biology says that it's not genetics, it's the new biology emphasizes epigenetics, and the prefix epi means above. So if I say genetic control, that means control by genes. If I say epigenetic control, that says control above the genes. And the whole difference is now we recognize that our perceptions and our responses to the world around us uh, alter our genetic readout uh, on a daily basis. Every day of your life, you're influencing the readout of your genes based on how you perceive the world and how you respond to it. So the basic difference? Old vision, genetic determinism, you're a victim, and we need to buy a rescuer, the pharmaceutical company, for example. Why, well, I can't take care of myself, so I need to buy from these people. And the new science, epigenetics, is mastery. It says you control the genetics and the biology all the time, but you didn't know it. And if you understand this and imply, uh, you know, apply your consciousness to it, you can maintain health and live on heaven and earth. And that, that's so we go from victim to master. That's a big change. Uh, the survival of the fittest is the biggest problem that face, we face on the world today because it's an archaic idea of Darwinian theory that says that uh, in order to evolve, we are constantly involved in a struggle to survive and that life is this eternal uh, struggle and violence and we buy into that so when we see all the violence around us and all the competition we go yeah yeah that's that's important for evolution and it turns out the new science reveals that evolution is based on harmony and community that the entire biosphere with the exception of human beings is one gigantic harmonious living integrated system it's only humans that haven't uh, recognized the responsibility of harmony and, and so basically why it's important because if we leave behind a darwinian world which is based on competition which leads to violence which leads to war and enter into a world based on harmony and community community then uh, we change the entire politic and relationship where we all start to get together and, and in that process work together harmoniously to support one another uh, in this giant superorganism called humanity. And the last of the four, 
was the, the belief that um, we got here through random mutations. And I said, well, what's the significance? I said, well, if I asked you then what was the purpose of humans being on the planet, and you would have to say, well, according to Darwinian theory, we got here by random genetic accidents, so there is no purpose. We just happened to win the genetic crapshoot, and here we are. And the relevance about that is it disconnects us from nature. We see ourselves as just a coincidence of nature, and now we understand from the evolution science that uh, evolution uh, led to every organism that was introduced into the environment was introduced with a specific aim of maintaining harmony and balance in, 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 the, in that environment. Every organism that evolved over time came into this world to facilitate harmony and balance. And then you look at, okay, what about humans? You guys, oh, well, that's why we were brought here, but look what we did. We destroyed all this harmony and balance, and now our own life is being threatened by it. So it says, my God, we better turn around this whole thing and get this thing back on track because our mission is to tend the garden. And uh, in destroying it, we have now recognized that our own lives are on the hook in this regard. And, and the last part of that one is also that there's this perception that evolution is a long, slow, uh, imperceptible changes over millions of years, and all of a sudden some new species shows up. Well, we now know that that concept, that Darwinian belief, is wrong, that evolution goes in jumps that there, things seem to be going along at a steady state, and then all of a sudden some upheaval occurs, and it causes uh, just a, you know, an undoing of the, of the environment, and then a restructuring immediately leads to a whole new set of species and organisms coming in the planet. So uh, this, this theory, which is based on Stephen Gould and Niles Eldridge, is called punctuated equilibrium, and it says you go along in equilibrium and then some punctuation mark, and in the past something like a comet or asteroid has hit the planet and punctuated this thing by altering the environment so much that it causes a, a, a redistribution of, of all the species and a loss of tremendous species and the beginning of new species. So it's not a long protracted evolution. There's just pulses, like spontaneous jumps. And why I'm bringing that up, Gary, is as, you know, as you're aware here, we're at the state of having been in an equilibrium for a long period of time, but now come to the end of this equilibrium because uh, our life is being threatened, and we don't have like a million years to slowly evolve, that we are going to go through uh, an upheaval that would be, in, in the course of time, would be virtually instantaneous. A spontaneous evolution is awaiting us, and, and it's coming faster than anyone can imagine, especially people out in the mainstream that are not really paying attention because they're lost in the, in the matrix trance right here. But yes, as you're aware and as you've been leading this understanding, we are imminently poised to make an evolutionary jump because the system will crack and that is the opportunity to, to install uh, a new viable um, uh, ecology, biology, and sociology. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Dr. Bruce Lipton, L-I-P-T-O-N, a continuation of our conversations with Remarkable Minds. We're talking about spontaneous evolution. We actually had indicators of this when Dr. Baltimore and uh, the woman uh, physicists were finding jumping genes back in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, the beginning of that, and then confirming it. I'm going to do something similar to what a um, Aboriginal bone thrower would do. I'm going to throw a bunch of bones down, and I would like you to analyze how they lay. All right? I'm going to give you an oversight of why we must be very conscientious of the choices we make so that we do not assume 
that what we're trying to do will lead to a better world unless we are better people. So I'm going to lay out a scenario for you. It'll take a little bit of time, and then I would like for you to take your time to, to discuss it with us, all right? Yeah. The year was 1975. I had purchased with my brother Stephen a small farm. That's all we could afford at that time, up in Stone uh, Ridge, New York, about an hour and 45 minutes from New York City. And we had rebuilt the farm, which was an old Norwegian family that had been there since the 1600s in the same family. We used the same tools they did. Uh, so if a window broke, we had to fix the window as they would have then. So it was interesting, the tools that we had and the tools that we made, uh, so that nothing modern, there were no drills and no modern hammers, nothing at all. And it was a very good education for us because it showed us what it was like then. And that was part of the exercise. Then about a year later, when everything was done, it was really very uh, wonderful to be up there. I thought, I can do something that helped the artist. I have a great love and affinity for artists of all types. So I invited 50 artists to come up and spend a year there. No rent, no food. No electric, no phone costs at all. I was going to subsidize all this to help them out. And, uh, and I wanted to select a poet, uh, a uh, ballerina, a uh, opera singer, a, a fine artist, a graphic artist, a sculptor, a weaver, a potter, glassmaker, and have them just have a chance to be in nature and do their work without the stress that comes when you're having to live on Avenue A, uh, uh, at that time a ghetto in New York City, in a rough ghetto with gangs, uh, because there was no other place that if you were an artist you could afford to live. And I interviewed the people, looking at their work, and, and I made my selection. And then I had an orientation, and I, I just said, it's this simple. If you find that living here um, is important to you, understand your sharing, even though you have your own private room, you're sharing a common environment. Please respect the other people and please keep the environment as it is. And I took them around and said, see how neat and clean and organized everything is? All you have to do is just don't make a mess. You know, don't um, be thoughtful. Okay, everyone agreed. I left there. By the time I got back to New York City, there were already 14 messages of complaints on my, cell, on my uh, answering machine. So the next day I drove back up and took care of those. Then petty things. And then I, but all week I was getting, my caretaker was saying, Gary, these people are, they're, they're uh, one person's playing music all night and, and, and everybody is awake and they're angry in the morning. And one person, you know, said we should all eat uh, breakfast together and someone else says, no, I want this. And, and he said, uh, um, these are not good people. I mean, they may be good artists, but as people, they're very dysfunctional. I said, well, be patient. So I went up on the weekends. For the next three weekends, I would spend all Friday, Saturday, and Sunday working with them. When I was there, it wasn't a problem. But when I wasn't there, there was. Finally, it got so bad, my caretaker threatened to quit. And he was a very easygoing, very balanced person. He said, these people are nuts. They're selfish. They're self-absorbed. They're egotistical. They're dysfunctional. They don't give a damn about anyone. They're acting like petulant brats. And uh, so you had a good idea, but it fell because the people didn't match the idea. That's what he said to me, Brian. So finally, I had to ask these people to go home. And one of them says, well, why'd you invite us? I said, friend, I invite everyone to my table to share a meal. 
But if you spit on everyone else's food, do not expect to stay at my table. And that's how I left it. Now we go forward. I have seen over the years that what we need, and especially today, is a new type of community in the United States. Not a commune, a community. And not a community of vegans because you can have dysfunctional, self-righteous Nazi police of the uh, food who condemn anyone who's not a vegan. I just had an experience with that where I was at a, a dinner where a person was serving meat uh, to a group of directors. I was one of the directors. There were about 40 directors, and, and I, I didn't know the person. They were very gracious. They, they were of no exceptional means. They were just ordinary financial means, but they went out of the way to serve a meal to everyone, and, and I focused upon the graciousness of the host, the hospitality, the positive energy, the sharing of what it is to be a documentarian because they were all documentarians. And I wanted to learn about uh, what they did and learn about projects they were working on. It was very exciting. And at the end of the meal, I thanked them all and left. And this person who was across the table says, you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. And I said, for what? I wouldn't touch that food. I said, well, I eat some string beans and broccoli. Oh, you had meat on your plate. I said, yes, I had meat on my plate. But I chose to show respect for the host who did not know I was a vegan and to be thankful that another human being thought enough of all of us to share what they had, meager as it may have been, in the spirit of cooperation and communion. You would have made that person feel bad about themselves for being gracious. So what then would have been the conversation? People would have been defensive and hostile. You would have turned the energy in the room negative and toxic. Is that what you intend to do because someone didn't meet your needs? I'm a vegan though I can still respect in the sanctity of other people, even if they have not made the choices I have. I am not the person who everybody should be following their advice. I'm but one person, and I must follow my own advice. So therefore, when I'm sitting with someone, I'm sitting with someone as a person. The choices they make are their choices. This person didn't get it. But then again, a lot of vegans don't get it, and a lot of peaceniks don't get it. When peaceniks go to a rally on peace and then hate the people and wish the people dead who are against, uh, who are for war, that is hardly a separation of ideologies if the common theme at the end is destruction of the spirit or individuals. So I'm thinking that what we need now is people who come together in a common environment where they maintain their individuality, they maintain their own space, but are there because they are harmonized at the human level. They're harmonized in their joy of life, the appreciation of nature, the choices they can make, and people being around who share similar, similar choices. Then being a vegan is merely an extension of being a good human being. What the hell's the good of being a vegan if you're an ass? All right? And most people who are vegans I know are asses. They're intolerant. They're selfish. They're obsessed. They're over the top. They're self-righteous. You know, we don't need another, you know, a mindset that is intolerant of other people. And we need people who appreciate the aesthetics of nature, who are not into consumerism, who are interested in things they can build or create that have long-term sustainability, who use in a natural cycle what is provided so that they're not just consuming and polluting. They are consuming and sharing. 
acting as teachers and craftspeople for the rest of the people in the world, even having videos that uh, uh, streaming so people elsewhere could see someone uh, tending a garden, someone else doing sprouts, someone else making granola, someone else quilting, someone else um, uh, showing them how to do an, uh, solar, uh, solar panels on their house, a hot water heater out of solar. So the world can learn from people in communities, but the quality of the person's mindset determines the quality of the energy that's commonly shared. I see that as the future in decentralized communities throughout the United States in those states that have sustainable futures. That's not California, Mexico. Those places are not going to be sustainable in the future. Once again, what is the purpose of opening up a holistic community of thinkers in a place that already has had its resources exploited and cannot sustain? but in places where we have wonderful environments that could easily sustain where there would not be destruction, and then have people who can share a common environment without, as those artists did, being too immature and too lacking in spiritual development to appreciate what negative energy does when you're in a common environment. It is like someone putting arsenic in the water. And so I see that uh, the next emerging uh, issue in the world that we need to be in is getting our own acts together so we can be accepting, we can be fluid, we can be creative, we can be transformative, and we can stop being so dysfunctional. And that is where I believe we should be. Your thoughts, please. Well, I agree exactly, and that's why when I wrote Spontaneous Evolution, while it was all a book about the nature of uh, civilization and changing thought and pattern and how evolution evolves, a major part of the book was dedicated to this simple reality. It says, look, this is a participatory evolution, and it's not going to happen by us sitting in an armchair waiting in the living room for something to, to manifest for itself, that we are all involved with this. And then I go on to say exactly like you were talking about, but we have to be very careful about our own personal creations because we're operating from, from two different minds. We're operating from the conscious, creative mind uh, and from the subconscious habit mind. And they're not very proportional in regard to the amount that is, each is operating because it turns out the habit mind operates from 95 to 99 percent of the time. And, and then you say, well, what's the problem with that? And I say, well, the creative mind is what you want to create, that your desire to create that, that uh, place where artists can go and, and, and you know, expand their, their, their life and their work. It was a beautiful vision, uh, and that was a creative mind. And, and the people that were selected saw that and said, yeah, I want to go up and become creative. But when they got up there, they started to have problems, and the problems are not that their creativity was in conflict. It was their unconscious, subconscious programming, which they get from other people. And, 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 and when they engage in this behavior, they don't see it. So when I give a lecture, I, I talk to people, I say, look, uh, I, I say, for example, you have a very close friend in your life, and you know your friend very well, and you know your friend's parent. And at some point, you recognize that your friend shares the same behavior as their parent, which is the programming of that subconscious. And then you say to your friend, well, you know, Bill, you're just like your dad. And then you back away from Bill as events, like, how can you compare me to my dad? And, you know, in shock. And, and, and people laugh because they're very familiar with it. And I said, but wait, I want you to understand, we're all Bill. 
we're all built because all of us have been programmed and operate from these subconscious programs without seeing it just like bill everyone could see that bill behaved like his dad it was only bill who didn't see it but we all have these programs and so when conflicts arise it's not generally because the conscious creative mind generated the conflict it's because the old programs that are responsible for the matrix in fact have created this and so what's the evolution call for it says we must own responsibility for our lives and we must own responsibility for the fact that we are operating ninety five percent of the time or more from programs that we got from other people that we don't even see so what the book was emphasizing before we were going to make this evolutionary jump you yourself as an individual must make your personal evolutionary jump and and clear up these limiting and self-sabotaging and disempowering programs that that uh, the environment provided for us when we were very young and it's very interesting because when I talk about this new biology and how the programming occurs before the age of six and how the brain is designed to download programs straight into the subconscious mind by observing the world, and I go, look, this is not new information. 1,500 years ago, the Jesuits would say, uh, you give me a child till it's six and it will belong to the church for the rest of its life, or you, you, know, you give me a child and I'll show you the man. What they were saying was, if you give me that six years, I can program this child. And then my joke is, well, Wait a minute, you think this, you know, that was 1,500 years ago. You think that the, the people in charge have just forgotten about this fundamental fact of programming people for the first six years of their lives? That is the essence of the matrix that we've been caught in. So the evolution that you're talking about and that I'm talking about first says you've got to get out of the matrix. And I say, well, what's that? The invisible beliefs that you're operating from 95% of the day that you don't see that are conflict-causing and, 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 and self-sabotaging. And, and so evolution is a responsible part for us, but first we have to identify what happened to us. How come we all want peace? And, you know, when you do a, a big survey of the world, I say, okay, look, maybe 90% of the people in the world will say, uh, when you say, what do you want? They would say, oh, just some peace and some freedom, a job, some food, you know, just simple things. And you say, well, if 90% of the world wants that, and we're creating the world that we live in, then how come that doesn't manifest? And, and then it goes back to, yeah, but those people that knew, if I just programmed you the first six years after that, you are the program. That's been operating for 1,500 years. And, and the evolution that is in front of us says, get out of this matrix first and watch out because your behavior doesn't always reflect your conscious wishes and desires because your behavior is directed by the programmers that that taught you when you were young so you just uh, hit you just hit you you just hit it right on the head and and i am going forward to do this by the way and i will buy this gigantic piece of property that's in a perfect environment but i've learned a very important lesson over the years including counseling maybe seventy thousand individuals um, and that is that you, before I work on the disease, I work on the dysfunction. Yes. That is how, and let me give you one quick example. There was a woman who came to see me, and I've been filming and traveling and lecturing nonstop, 20, uh, 27, 20 hours a day, seven days a week for months now. I'm, I'm going to be finished in the next four weeks of all this, and I can take a break and uh, work towards that goal. Um, and one of the women didn't have much time. She was given only days to weeks to live. In stage, uh, ovarian cancer metastasized to the bones, uh, to the liver, and nothing more could be done. She was sent home uh, with uh, morphine. Uh, first day I saw her, she could walk maybe 
50 feet without excruciating pain. As of yesterday, she walked six miles with no pain. Um, where she uh, was bloated, she is not. Uh, where she had no energy, she has abundant energy. Where she would be crying inconsolably, she is smiling. What did I do? What protocol? Nothing for her cancer. Everything for her fear. And her fear was her dysfunction. So once I worked on the dysfunctional self-sabotaging part of her energy, and, and she was working on this, I'm going to say, now I wasn't there, but she was telling me, 12 hours a day. I would give her uh, like lessons, I would give her videos, I would give her chapters out of book, and then she would, uh, at nighttime, uh, I would speak to her, and she would go over everything, and that was her hardest effort. I said, realize how much the body can do to heal itself, uh, along with other therapies, as long as you give it permission to heal. But how much of what you've given is not permission to heal, but permission to disease. And so now she's out of that whole condition, and my goodness, she said she had over 60 pages of journal entries just on how fear and insecurity caused her to make bad choices throughout her life. I had her go back and look throughout her life of when she started bad choices. And she said it now it's clear as a bell. Now she has the ability to laugh and smile and be present, be happy all day long. Before, it wasn't at all. Now the therapy to help her cancer uh, is, is possible. And uh, instead of, uh, and I'm going to get a report later today when uh, she goes to see the uh, oncologist, the hospital, the state of her cancer, and get her into a more formal cancer alternative program, but if you talk about helping people, you're not going to be able to help anyone. Or I can't, I, I'll talk for myself. I can't help anyone uh, to have their body function if their mind is dysfunctional. And I think that all of the people in the field of healing yourself right in there, right at the top, because you're one of the foremost voices of showing a whole new way of healing, is we must not forget the conditioning response and how powerful the dark side of our conditioning is in overcoming the conscious spiritual awareness of the moment that that body is in and how we will act in the worst of interest even though we want the best of intent. Your final thoughts on this, please. Well, basically, that's exactly the issue that, uh, you know, one of the misperceptions uh, that people have been plagued with, and that is, oh, you, you're controlled by your genes, you're a victim, your cancer is your body against you, you had nothing to do with this, and you come to us and we're going to treat you conventional medical awareness. And yet the new science reveals that most cancers are nothing organic, but they're epigenetic, meaning the, their body's responses to the mind. And so, uh, and then, of course, since we've been operating uh, invisibly 95% of the time to those mind programs that we were given when we were very young and don't see it, then we have no responsibility for our own illness according to that belief system and therefore somebody else has to fix you and as you really brought forward here it's you don't fix them they have to be ready to fix themselves but they have to go back into the mind and recognize that invisible programming that disempowering and self-sabotaging program that we got when we were young was what controls us in a world and and that to free ourselves we must go back and identify what programming is it that has caused this life? Because if I change the programming, which you just emphasized, 
then the life will immediately be transformed. That's what spontaneous remission is all about. People that are terminally ill, everybody counts them out, and then all of a sudden they have this remarkable turnaround where they're perfectly healthy, and then people say, well, what was the foundation? Why did this happen? And in every case, the foundation is the patient had a profound change in consciousness and belief, and it was that change that then was manifested in the body. So rather than trying to work with the body directly, as you said, the first thing is let's work with your fears and your concerns about life because that is the cause of illness. You're absolutely right. I, I no longer get, I've seen too many people, I've given the best protocols, and yet they are sabotaging themselves. So now it's just reverse. Work on the beliefs, work on the fears, work on the limitations, work on what self-sabotages. But you can't work on it if you're an individual always coming from the idea that you're a victim, that someone else or something else is to blame, circumstances are to blame, and that uh, if only you had was love, if only you had was more acceptance. You can have all the love and acceptance in the world. If you're still dysfunctional, that's not going to do you any good. You've got to love yourself unconditionally, and you've got to accept yourself for who you are to be enough for all the things that are enough in your own life. Bruce Lipton, always good to speak with you. I look forward to our next uh, ability to sit down and film for a couple of the upcoming self-empowerment films. I so love working with you, Gary, and, and, and having an opportunity to interface your audience because these are the people that are thinking, and it's the thinking people that are going to help us evolve. So I, I'm so appreciative of this opportunity to be with you. All the best to you. Thank you. Conversations with Remarkable Minds, Dr. Bruce Lipton, the author of Spontaneous Evolution. I'm Gary Nall.